Good morning, everyone. My name is Jackie B. I am an alcoholic from San Francisco. Would you all join me in a moment of silence and uh, with a serenity prayer? God. and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, I am so honored to speak at this uh, conference. Um, I'm going to be doing a, a talk that I gave uh, at um, for the San Francisco uh, Marin Intergroup Archives. Uh, I believe it was last year. Um, and uh, I am a uh, hobbyist. I am a, a amateur uh, historian of the recovery movement. I have not been elected into any AA service position as a historian, but I am available to serve if <laughs> if anyone is looking for a position like that. And but um, my interest in um, AA history, uh, I've been sober for uh, 13 years, and my interest in AA history probably began about year one or two. Um, there was an old timer named Cy P who was a member of my home group, and I used to start following him around to meetings. I don't think he knew I did that. And so he went to a meeting called Sesame Step on Tuesday night, which was a step study, tradition study. Last Thursday of, or Tuesday of the month was the traditions night. And so I wouldn't speak at me- at meetings usually, or not very often, but he always spoke on Traditions Night, and he usually had a really uh, not only cool piece of his own personal history, but then sometimes he would like slam down a a fascinating piece of AA history um, when talking about one of the traditions. And um, one one day it was uh, Tradition 3 was the topic, um, and he told a story about a person that will pop up in here (laughs) a little later named Joe, Joe M., and Joe M. of the Joe and Charlie uh, Big Book Seminars. And he told and explained that Joe M. was actually uh, a black man. Uh, it turns out Joe was the first uh, black man to get sober in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1962. Um, and Joe and his speaker shares would say in 1962, you didn't want to be the first black man to do anything in Arkansas. So he has a fascinating history aside from the big book study. But Cy was actually telling a story about something that took place in the 1980s that he heard Joe tell a story about how in the 1980s Joe was traveling around and he was in the South and he was in the middle of driving, stopped by an AA meeting because he needed a meeting and was told that they didn't allow um, uh, black people inside of this AA meeting in 1980, somewhere in the South. Um, and, you know, uh, Cy told the rest of the story. It, it had a, a happy ending, fortunately, um, <laughs> for that one moment, for that one person. And um, But it made me uh, start to think about things about AA history I hadn't thought of before and I hadn't really heard people talk about before. Like, for example, what was it like for early black members in Jim Crow South? AA started in 1935 and kind of... Uh, became, uh, started to grow more in the 1940s, we're still talking about segregation, uh, legalized in the South, and, you know, um, social, uh, socially allowed segregation in the North, and so uh, that just sparked a whole bunch of thoughts for me. I myself am a, a, a cis woman, and um, I, uh, I'm, I, I'm Jewish, I grew up Jewish, uh, came in as a secular Jew, so I experienced a sense of 
um, some challenges when I first came into the room. And l- luckily, I found a meeting where I felt comfortable and that there were people who I could identify with. But uh, it just it made me think about a lot. So in many ways, my interest in the history of AA started with the history of these underserved populations. Uh, I used to call them marginalized people, but when I started doing general service a couple of years ago, I was introduced to a term called remote communities. And I'll talk about that. Remote communities is now one of my favorite things to think about and talk about in AA, and it ties in my interest um, that I've had in these uh, special purpose groups, special interest groups is what they used to be called. Um, My favorite term is special composition groups, but it kind of ties everything in together. So um, I'm really grateful. I want to also say that um, for this talk, I've done a lot of research into the history of uh, early underserved populations. Um, Most of my research on the early black groups um, and on the early women's group, a lot of them come from uh, research that I was able to do with the General Service Archives, the San Francisco Marin Archives. I've done a little, um, but a majority of this talk is based on research by Audrey B. in this amazing book called The History of Gay People and Alcoholics Anonymous, which needs a second edition, Audrey, just letting you know so something to start working on since you're not that busy I'm joking um, <laughs> but so I'll be I'll, I'll try to cite sources as often as I can in this but this is a primary source for this talk and so I wanted to um, uh, give due diligence uh, for that credit because I think a lot of times when we share a history we don't really talk about our sources very much and I think that's actually really really important and I've heard a lot of interesting pieces of history at AA meetings <laughs> um, and uh, so anyway let's get started so uh, I also want to thank Kim so much because not only is she the chair Kim as the chair of this year's amazing conference but she is also the archivist for both Living Sober and the San Francisco Marin Intergroup. And I get excited anytime I meet a, uh, a short, uh, bespeckled, brown-haired woman archivist. <laughs> there are now three of us in total. No, at least in Northern California, we get mistaken for each other all the time. So I'm actually not an archivist. I'm just a parasite that just leeches off of the hard work of archivists. Um, But uh, anyway, so it's a real treat. Um, Okay. And also, I wanted to say that uh, Audrey is speaking today at 2.30. So, um, and I'm very excited to hear her talk about uh, one of the first transgender and people of color to approach Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, And um, I'm really excited about that. Okay. So, um, I, like many people in AA, don't believe there's really any such thing as a special alcoholic, but there are alcoholics who face additional or special barriers to receiving the AA message, and as I mentioned in general service, we call these underserved populations, these groups of people who face additional barriers, remote communities, And uh, these barriers that they can face can be geographic, linguistic, or cultural. And so today we're going to be looking at the history of culturally remote communities in AA, um, and specifically looking at how they tie in with the history of 
uh, LGBTQIA alcoholics. Um, I'll be using the word gay and LGBTQ, LGBTQIA, lesbian. I'll be interspersing them, so um, please know that I, I would like to keep that term as inclusive as possible. Also, historically, a, a term that gets used quite a bit is homosexual, so that'll be a term that I will probably be saying as well um, and using them all together. Um, and one of the... Uh, in my belief, one of the most uh, important and effective tools in helping to reach uh, remote communities, culturally remote communities, linguistically remote communities, um, but any remote communities, um, but specifically cultural ones, are special composition groups. So these special composition groups ha that are based on gender, age, and occupation, um, they've been around since the early 1940s. And they grew in popularity in the 1950s and the 60s and the 70s um, when AA membership grew. And there was also kind of a growth in, you know, some people in the 80s we started calling identity politics. But I think also culturally speaking, there was also a sense of people starting to identify um, in these kind of communities as well. And so in the 70s especially, you saw a big influx of groups as well, uh, special composition groups. Um, and uh, especially as AA grew and became more and more diverse itself. And with some exceptions overall, most of these, um, which I'll talk about some of these, but a lot of these special composition groups were accepted by most intergroups and members without much alarm until groups for gay and lesbian alcoholics began to visibly form because they've been around for a while, but there was a difference when they started to visibly kind of make themselves known and ask for recognition. And we'll get to that relatively shortly. But let's, I always like to give some historical context because... Um, I, you know, AA is a part of the society from which it grew, right? And so I'm a person who believes that AA um, is really a product of the time in which it, and the place in which it was um, born and, and the things that have happened around it. So the historical context of just um, the stigmatization and the criminalization of homosexuality in North America, specifically the United States, has been a part of U.S. history from the nation's birth. Crimes such as sodomy were considered capital offenses in most of the New Republic, and gay people were restricted from assembling in public places. Being rumored of gay, even being rumored of gay, it's devastating. I'm sure this is not a shock to anyone, um, but in case, you know, I feel like it's important to say that, you know, just being rumored of gay could lead you to be unemployed, ostracized, being physically attacked, being murdered. But then there was a shining spot in our history in the United States in the roaring 1920s, uh, specifically in metropolitan areas and specifically like New York and San Francisco and in certain fields such as the arts and the entertainments, gays and lesbians in the 1920s uh, attained a greater visibility and a tolerance than ever before, um, certainly more than their suburban and rural fel fellows, right? And that's always for me also important to remember how these trends can be different. AA is very different in rural areas and it is in metropolitan areas and, and things like that. And that's also because that's how the culture in the United States is like that. Um, in fact, in the 1924, the very first gay rights organization was formed by this guy, Henry Gerber, and it's called the Society for Human Rights. So 1920s, very cool period, right? And then something happened in 1929. And the stock market crash, a very important moment in the United States history, but also in the formation of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Great Depression. Ernie, Ernie Kay, who's one of my favorite AA sto um, historians, um, he wrote a book called Not God. I highly recommend it. It's a history of AA. It's not conference approved, but that's okay. Not conference approved does not mean conference forbidden. So... <laughs> 
just means we don't publish it. Um, but it's a wonderful book, and he really believes that, um, in a way, the hitting of bottom that occurred in the American psyche as a part of the Great Depression kind of actually also led to that um, the formation of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and what happened, in, you know, what happens oftentimes during periods of um, I noticed, historically speaking, during periods of progression, you know, especially socially, uh, usually is um, if fuel followed by a period of regression. Sound familiar to anyone? I don't know. Maybe something that might be going on right now. Um, so there was a lot of progress in the 1920s in specific areas for uh, visibility and acceptance of LGBTQI. And then uh, the stock market crash happened. The, America was in a lot of fear. And so suddenly there was kind of this regression into more rigidity and, and unacceptance of gays and lesbians. And the biggest, one of the great examples of that is is the Hayes Code in 1934, which was um, by the Motion Picture Association, which basically forbid um, any films, uh, plays, and books depicting homosexuality as anything other than a vice or a sin or illness. It was ruled obscene and banned. So you could have gay characters in movies, but they had to die miserably. Um, uh, they had to be really, yeah, die miserably um, usually, or they had to be the villain. And, you know, and there's a wonderful movie documentary called The Celluloid Closet, and you'll see that, like, it's taken a really long time for things to change, and some people will say that you can still see certain tropes like that still exist. But that's, like, a really perfect example, 1934, of kind of uh, uh, institutionalized uh, um, regression and discrimination. So all of this is going on, and there was a place... You know, so you're a gay person in the United States during this time period, and where are you going to find other gay people? Where are you going to find your sense of community? It's still not that different for a lot of LGBTQ today. You find them in a bar. Now, this is actually 1950, and I hope, you know, trigger warning, but, you know, 35 cents for whiskey. And that's uh, actually the menu from the Black Cat, which is in San Francisco. So that was an early gay bar in San Francisco. And here are some pictures. Um, this, I believe, is from the late 20s, early 30s. This is a little later. But, um, and um, most, in Audrey's book, she describes that most gay bars at this time were windowless dives, where patrons endured inflated places, pol police harassment, arrest, and assault. And she has this beautiful quote in her book that I always think about, and this is what she says. And just I think about if this quote about bars reminds you of anything. Once inside, you could feel it, the sense of connection, of community, of belonging somewhere. That was the experience a lot of people had going into a gay bar. Um, and so alcohol became a big part of how gay people found each other, how they connected, how they dealt with their hurts and their traumas. And then another major moment in American history happened. World War II. The United States entered World War II in 1941 after Pearl Harbor, and it was the catalyst of change for many marginalized groups in American society, from women to people of color to gay men and women. The military classified homosexuals as being psychologically unfit for service, but that did not stop 100,000 gay men and women from enlisting and serving in their country. So here are some of our uh, gay veterans from World War II. And then once away from the small-town authorities and the conservative morals, these young gay men and women, they found new identities, new communities. Returning from war, many of them moved to thriving gay communities in big cities like San Francisco and New York City. Um, it was also during this time 
um, during and following World War II that we saw the formation and proliferation of a majority of special composition groups for women, young people, people of color, all of this setting the stage for the first gay group. So again, World War II, you can't, uh, the way that it changed American society is just so huge. And, I, and you saw it reflected when uh, the war ended and people were coming back. Um, women were once again expected to go back into the household. They didn't want to. Same thing with people of color, no longer you know, wanted to accept being second-class citizens as giving up their lives in the war. Um, identity, and some people believe this is the real beginning of the sense of, uh, I, I don't like the word identity politics, but the, the set, a sense of identities and communities kind of rallying together, um, and particularly around civil rights and civil rights issues. And this, I don't think, is a coincidence in the mid-1940s is also when we begin to see the first black groups. Uh, we begin to see a big boom in women's groups, young people's groups, etc. Um, so let's now talk about women's groups. Very first of the special composition groups. So according to Nell Wing, who's this awesome non-alcoholic uh, woman who was our first archivist, this is a uh, a description of what she said about how um, women who uh, approached AA in the late 1930s and early 40s felt. And uh, see if it makes you think of anything. Um, it was generally felt by male members that women had no place in an AA meeting where their presence was considered by many to be a disturbing factor. A couple of things when I read that, I, I always think to myself, you know, um, there are people at the meetings I attend, and sometimes even a class of people who I, at meetings that I attend who I think of as disturbing factors, and it's really humbling and good for me to remember that uh, not so many decades ago, right, I was the disturbing factor in a meeting, and some people will probably say I still am a disturbing factor in the meetings I attend, but I think that's a really powerful thing to remember, you know, um, uh, to be reminded of. But yeah, a disturbing factor in a meeting. I, I, I just think that's such an important um, phrase. Even Dr. Bob himself was reluctant to allow women alcoholics to join meetings. He is actually credited as the originator of the old saying, under every skirt there's a slip. That is uh, that's what he And you can find that in Dr. Bob in the good old timers. So that is an AA conference-approved um, biography. But he had a, a, a negative experience with a woman named Lil, who was the first woman to approach Alcoholics Anonymous for help. Dr. Bob was at his bridge game. And so the, uh, uh, Lil's family dropped, um, dropped her off. And there was a, another newcomer named Vic. And these two newcomers... Uh, I guess, created the 13th step back in 1936, 37, in Dr. Bob's private medical room um, on the medical examination table. And uh, there's these great story, you know, and Dr. Bob in the Good Old Timers has this great description of, like, the, uh, the old-time AAs with, you know, a year or less under their belt chasing Lil around, like, the table, and she's grabbing pills and just throwing random pills in her mouth. And this one guy, Ed G., Eddie G., uh, was reported to say that she cursed, like, a sailor, and he'd never heard such profanity co coming out of a person's mouth before. And she was strong as a horse. And needless to say, by the time Dr. Bob showed up, they had managed to calm her down. And then the next day, her family picked her up and said, you guys have no idea what you're doing. And after that, Bob was like, 
Now, he never had a problem with, you know, men named Vic, you know, coming back to AA, but <laughs> women were the problem. So it, it took actually quite a while for Dr. Bob to change his stance on this. Um, and it wasn't just uh, the men in AA who were uncomfortable by the presence of women. Um, the non-alcoholic wives were not happy about this either. And that's because um, it was believed commonly that uh, uh, alcoholic women uh, were um, promiscuous and and it was very normal for the wives uh, the non-alcoholic uh, the non-alcoholic wives who attended meetings in these days because they were held in homes usually you know in their own homes um, they would call um, alcoholic women who attend went to AA parts and nymphomaniacs so here's some Little images about the stereotypes about alcoholic women. Um, and the first woman to try and join the Cleveland group, uh, none of the wives would allow her into their home, thereby excluding her from attending any meetings because all homes were held in meetings. Now, this is something, you know, um, Miley is going to, Elle is going to be giving a talk on Marty Mann. And one of the really interesting things I heard a talk a woman gave about um, women in AA history, and it changed the way that I, I like to talk about women in AA history because usually when we share about women in AA history, usually when we share about any of these kind of underserved groups in AA, you'll hear something along the lines of, oh, there was Sylvia and there was Marty and there was Florence and, oh, young people, there was Eddie G. And people of color, you know, and that's where they're like, uh, okay, Jim, Dr. Jim, right? Um, and we give these examples of these couple of cases of exceptional people who kind of managed to stick around and pave a way, right? But focusing on those individual cases often, like, under, you know, like, takes away from us looking at the general way in which people were treated, and then we don't actually get to see kind of, like, what were the trends. So the women that we know about who kind of were accepted and allowed in, what did they have in common? Marty Mann, Celia Kay, Jane S. and Akron, actually, who probably predated this woman named Florence from joining New York. They were all fairly wealthy. They were upper class. They were educated. They were, you know, in all terms, except for their alcoholisms, respectable. Uh, the women, the non-alcoholic wives couldn't refuse entry to a woman like Marty Mann, right? But if you were low class, if you were uneducated, which I'm assuming Lil was, you could, no one would argue with them in saying, oh, but the women, they don't want them in her house. They don't want people to talk. And so this place where class kind of intersects with our history and how people were accepted, I think is really important, right? Um, because sometimes, uh, and you can still hear it today, which is, you know, and I, I, I've met, you know, um, people, and I think maybe even at one time in my own um, recovery, I was guilty of it, saying, well, I found a way to be okay with the language in the big book. So really, any woman can. Right? I mean, is that true? To take a moment, right? Marty Mann was accepted, so really any woman could have stuck around back in those days. No, they couldn't. If they weren't allowed into the homes or allowed to talk to another alcoholic, they would not have been able to be members. So... It's just food for thought, and so it just kind of changed the way I look at all these things. So let's talk about what the experience was like for generally for women in AA. This is a really powerful, uh, again, I cannot tell you how much I love the grapevine so much, right? Because really, if you want to get a sense of what the experience was like for different kinds of AAs uh, throughout time and throughout place, right? The AA grapevine is this treasure trove, and they have a digital archives, but I mean, I feel like you just barely been like excavated, and so you find these little treasures that really give you a really poignant view of our history in the digital archives, and so this is from the April 1953 um, grapevine. It's by a female member named B.D., 
and um, she wrote an article called Are Women the Orphans of AA? It's such a powerful title. Um, and it's, it's going to remind me of the experiences I've heard from some of my friends um, today from a different underserved population. And I'll talk about that a little later. But here is what she writes. She says, women are only tolerated in AA. And grant you, this is 1953, so we're not even anymore talking about the early 1940s. Women are only tolerated in AA. They are the orphans of AA. I never dreamed there existed so much hostility towards women alcoholics until I started to attend AA meetings. I blessed the woman member who steered me to my women's discussion group in my hard first months of my sobriety because without its guidance and intimate group therapy, I might have dropped out as countless other women do. And so here we have have, uh, just a really beautiful um, kind of way of talking about why special composition groups can be an effective solution and entryway for remote communities. And really... Starting in the early 1940s, the most successful solution to AA's early women problems was the formation of special meetings for female members. In these special meetings, they offered comfort and understanding to new members while mollifying the male AAs and their non-alcoholic wives. And the other thing to always remember about these early histories is the concerns that women, the concerns people had about women alcoholics for the most part was about how they were affecting everyone else in the group rather than how their, their own safety and psychological safety. Um, and granted, unity in our group's welfare is very, very important, you know, but um, I think today it's, it's a really interesting insight. So again, you know, um, who are the disturbing factors in your, meeting, your meetings um, today? So the first women's group um, was believed to have started in Cleveland, Ohio, in June 1941. It was quickly followed by a group in San Diego. But once these groups started forming, for the most part, everyone thought it was a grand idea. It kind of solved a lot of problems. It worked a lot better than closed meetings, which were originally started, so that wives could be told not to come into the meetings, so that the alcoholics could not only speak freely, um, but also so that the women would not be getting into conflict with the non-alcoholic wives. Um, and then also, they even tried at one point separating women and men on different sides of the rooms in Cleveland. But this turned out to be the best solution, and usually um, Cleveland and a lot of cities eventually had at least one women's meeting um, a, a week, and then women would still attend other meetings, especially once they were being held outside of homes. Okay, so the next meetings to form that were special composition groups were young people's groups. The first known group for men and women under 35 was formed in January 1946 in Philadelphia. Here's an announcement from the grapevine. The group grew quickly, and by the end of their first year, they had 30 members. And the same year, a group started in San Diego. San Diego is just always falling behind, always second, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. San Francisco's first young people's meeting uh, began in 1946, and our first young people meeting here was called the 2040 Group. A year later, in 1947, a 35 and under group started in New York City. Now, a really cool thing I I read about in Audrey's book was that um, when you, a lot of the, uh, gay members that she interviewed um, for her book and then even some of the recountings um, 
I've I've heard from speaker tapes, uh, young people's group, before there were gay groups, young people's groups were often the safe haven for uh, LGBTQ members to attend, and often they would choose which meetings to go to. And so young people's groups have always kind of been this, like, safe haven, special composition groups for people of color. For, for they, they just tended to be more inclusive because they knew what it felt like to be excluded. Um, and so young people's groups also kind of serve that wonderful purpose. Uh, according to Bob... P., who was a, gen, uh, a really wonderful general manager of the General Service Office for many years, according to Bob P., he wrote an um, unpublished manuscript of AA World Service um, that the conference decided not to publish, but then was kind of self-published on the Internet. And I'm very glad because it's a wonderful resource, although you know, sometimes you have to be a little careful with the dates. But um, according to Bob P. in this manuscript, it was not uncommon at first for young people's groups to be excluded from local meeting directories and denied intergroup representation because they were considered not AA. This is important. This is going to come up over and over again in the history of gay groups and in the history of a lot of underserved populations, right? But to me, that, you know, I take that so much for granted that young people's groups are, you know, an integral part of AA. And to think that when they first started, they wouldn't, weren't allowed to be even put into a meeting directly. They were controversial. Uh, but according to Bob, these groups persisted, and today we know that young people's groups are not only accepted, but in many places admired for their enthusiasm for service. I will tell you, there's only one other place that I hear people talk about the traditions and the concepts as much as they do in general service, and that's in a YPAW committee, hands down. Um, and I'm amazed at the, at the amount of people who are, like, you know, um, frothing to get a service commitment at these YPAW <laughs> conferences, you know, usually they have like co-chairs for everything, you know, and if I'm, you know, lucky, I, we can find someone who's willing to like every other month show up for a service commitment at inner group. So, you know, um, and I have still heard to this day people at rooms saying, well, I've never been to a conference before. I mean, I've been to a YPAW conference, but that doesn't count. And I, I, that's not one of my favorite things to, to hear at all, right? So I have massive love and admiration for, for current YPAW um, and for the history of young people. And also there's an interesting parallel with LGBTQI because another thing you'll f see, and I'll mention a little bit, is there were a lot of um, gay and lesbians involved in service in a major way. Because both with young people and, and, and at the time, um, gays and lesbians were not allowed to marry, not allowed to adopt, um, not allowed to marry each other. They were perfectly allowed to marry members of the opposite sex. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, they did not always have the same kind of fa um, familial um, obligations as the hetero older um, uh, members. And so a lot of them got involved heavily into service. And so the backbone of general service, of intergroups, the grapevine, has been young people and LGBTQ. And um, very responsible for the growth of AA and the massive amount of service. And so that's a, a parallel with young people and the LGBTQI experience. In 1958, young people's groups banded together to form the International Conference of Young People and Alcoholics Anonymous, also known as ICIPA for short, ICIPA, and it's been held annually every, ever since 1958. It typically attracts around 3,000 to 5,000 attendees. It was just held in Boston, I believe, and uh, one of the main speakers was a sponsee that I 12-stepped into AA, so I'm, I'm very happy. And she helped founded uh, the Scandinavian young people when she moved back to Norway, so... I like to, I don't I get embarrassed about my own accomplishments but when they're my sponsees I get I get a Jewish mother about it. Okay. 
So anyway, <laughs> it's been, <laughs> uh, uh, and um, in addition, there are regional and state conferences for Yposita held a whole bidding system. Um, it's a very active, wonderful group, and they also get involved in public information in a big way, have liaisons with general service and intergroups, um, hugely involved in the service structure. Now let's talk about, um, oh yeah, here's another picture from the very first Icky Paw. Yeah. Look at all those old people. No, I'm joking. <laughs> like young people back in the day. That's not what it looks like nowadays. There's like nothing but beanies and flannels and jewels. Okay. Um, let's talk about the first black groups. Um, and as I mentioned, AA is a part of the society in which this exists. And when AA was founded in 1935, decades afterwards, de facto discrimination was accepted in many places. In the South, we have Jim Crow laws, which enforced racial segregation in public facilities and transportation. In the North, societal norms regarding fraternization between whites and blacks. It varied from city to city, neighborhood to neighborhood, but overall was still frowned down upon. Now, according to the conference-approved biography of Bill W. Pass It On, in 1942, Bill invited two black alcoholics he met at Rockland State Hospital to a meeting at the 24th Street Clubhouse. Um, because it was New York City, he didn't anticipate the kind of backlash he received. Taking a group conscience, the group decided that the visitors, the two black visitors, could only attend the meetings as observers for two meetings, and then they would, have, they would not be allowed back, but they would be encouraged to start their own meeting. Um, and this became a standard experience that ended up getting passed on when anyone wrote to New York for help is, you know, what, um, is allow them in to a meeting, if you can, as observers, and then help start their own meetings. Um, Bill W. wrote in a 1943 letter to a member concerned about the treatment of black alcoholics in AA. Um, he wrote, along with you, I feel very deeply about this race business. As I long, this is 1943. As I long since learned that no man can dictate to an AA group, I tell each fellowship to abide by the wishes of the majority of its members. And if a group refuses Negroes socially, it ought to make a superhuman effort to help every single colored case to a group of his own. The very first um, general service conference trial in 1951, there was a sharing session on colored black alcoholics. And um, there is a lot of fascinating, um, the, the report is really fascinating because um, the delegates came up and shared, and some of them shared about how um, they didn't think it was a problem because there weren't any black alcoholics in their state. That was North Carolina. Um, you know, and there were others that were, you know, most that said most of our meetings have black members. Not that most of them have black members. Black members are allowed into a great number of our meetings, and that was in a, a, a different state. Um, and so there was this weird, you know, uh, there was one uh, delegate who reported that they didn't believe that AA would work for alcohol, black alcoholics because blacks were incapable of being rigorously honest. This is a 1951 General Service Conference report, right? So these are, some, when we talk about barriers, that groups face. And the thing about remote communities, it's a local, it's, it's different locality to locality, right? So in one state, maybe black alcoholics or one city, one neighborhood, there wouldn't be a problem with black alcoholics feeling welcome at a meeting. And in other large swatches at the same time period, there's a huge barrier, right? And that's only the barrier of experience from, from 
the outside, there's also cultural barriers that some communities can feel from within as well against going into AA. But, um, and this is, it's a really very, there's one file at the General Service Archives devoted to just letter after letter after letter about the experiences of black alcoholics. Most of them are written by white members. And the, the wonderful thing is during this time period, the majority of the letters were actually written by people who were upset that blacks were being denied entry and wanted to know what they could do to change it. Um, so, what happened? So, the admittance um, of black alcoholics as observers, but not group members, was widely practiced throughout the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Black alcoholics, like many women, were encouraged to start their own groups. Unlike women members, however, in many places, attending a separate group or mixed group, it was not a choice. Um, in many places, it was not even an option because... Um, the other thing to understand is there were a lot of places that resistant to the idea of even starting separate meetings for black alcoholics because if you were in a club called Alcoholics Anonymous and you were white and then a couple miles away there was a black person in a club called Alcoholics Anonymous, guess what? That meant you belonged to an interracial club and that was not something a lot of white alcoholics were willing to do. And this became an issue specifically in St. Louis when the first black group formed in January 1944 called the A1 group, they wrote to New York, and they specifically requested that they not be listed in the directory and they not be announced in the grapevine. They were the very first black group, but we didn't know about this for years because they were not formally registered. And the reason why is because they had received death threats for forming, so they had to meet in secret. Uh, as the co-founder Harold W. wrote to headquarters, they were being pestered with racial problems and prejudices. Now, in Washington, D.C., a black doctor named Jim S. sobered up um, and with his white sponsor created a what was called a Negro group in April 1945. It's still around today. It's called the Cosmopolitan Group, and it's now a... Um, a mainstream group. I don't know what they call it. it. It stopped being known as an interracial group. Well, first it was a Negro group, then it became an interracial group, and now it just became an a, a, a round-of-the-mill AA group. They worked intensely within jails and with probation officers to work with prospects. The group became um, the contact point then for, because they were such an example of a successful, thriving, growing uh, black group that uh, New York... Did, just started sending letters and for requests for help on how to start a black group to Jim and to the folks in the Cosmopolitan group and the Washington, D.C. group. Um, and they were receiving so much letters that this led to the creation of the Negro Intergroup um, in the 1950s in Washington, D.C. I think this is fascinating and also relates to some current history that's happening with another underserved population. Robert H. became the secretary. He was this amazing man. He would travel around the country and help people start uh, black groups in their cities. Black groups faced a lot of challenges, you know, not just um, regarding discrimination and um, racism from other AA members or from the outside world, but a lot of times um, it was very hard for them to secure venues. No one wanted to rent a hall to a, a black person. Um, so a lot of groups had to sponsor. Sometimes you could find a group that would be willing to sponsor a black group until they were able to get on their feet, establish a, a sense of um, trust with the uh, venue, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of groups started and just failed because of all those extra additional economic barriers that they were facing. But like this larger society it's a part of, AA began to integrate slowly beginning in the mid-1950s one meeting at a time. Each meeting is autonomous. Each meeting had to vote and decide um, on, on whether or not 
it, black and white members would attend together. Um, and this is a picture of, uh, this is a famous picture from Brown versus Board of Education that um, was the Supreme Court ruling in the 1950s that separate was not equal, and so public facilities were no longer allowed to be segregated. And that kind of began the slow shift in the culture over time. And there's Joe and Charlie of the Joe and Charlie Big Book speaker tapes. And as I mentioned, here's Joe over here, first black man to get sober in the um, Little Rock, Arkansas in 1962. And even though today there's no legalized segregation in the United States and Canada, socioeconomic segregation can have an effect on the racial demographics of meetings in urban versus suburban neighborhoods, the participation of people of color in the general service structure. Currently, the general service board is um, asking for feedback from the fellowship on experience on reaching out to black and African-American alcoholics. If your group has a GSR, if not, your, you, you know, your sub-district will have a DCM, and if you have experience with this, you know, um, particularly with any of the barriers um, you've experienced or you've seen people of color face, um, it's something that um, is of concern and something we're talking about in general service right now, so please come and share your experience. Um, and we, yeah, so I could go on forever about that. So um, let's now move on, and let's talk about some of our early LGBTQ members. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on the individual members. I'm going to try and stay more focused on the group experiences because we have some wonderful talks happening today about some of our specific early group members. But the first reported gay member in Alcoholics Anonymous joined the Akron group in year two, 1937. A lot of this history, again, now we're getting into a place where a lot of Audrey's research from the book, A History of Gay People in AA, is coming into play. Um, this, uh, his story is described by Bill W. in the chapter on the third tradition in the 12 and 12. He's called the poor devil by Bill W. So that's how I always think of him as the poor devil. Some people talk about him of the man of the third tradition. Audrey talks to, about him. Uh, this poor devil shows up at Dr. Bob's door, desperate to get well. He then explains to Dr. Bob that he has another addiction, even worse stigmatized than alcoholism, and he asks if he can still join the group. Well, now we know that that addiction, that stigma was homosexuality because Bill W. in a 1968 General Service Conference talk revealed that that other addiction was homosexuality. And this is what Bill said. Right then, our destiny hung on a razor's edge over this single case. In other words, would there be rules that could exclude so-called undesirables? Finally, the day of resolution came. A bunch of us were sitting in Dr. Bob's living room arguing what to do, whereupon dear old Bob looked around and blandly said, isn't it time, folks, to ask ourselves... Who knows it? What would the master do in a situation like this? Would he turn this man away? And that was the beginning. This is what Bill said. That was the beginning of the AA tradition, that any man who has a drinking problem is a member of AA if he says so, not whether we say so, which is one of my favorite ways of talking about the third tradition. So now the identity of this gay man is unverified. I have a theory Unverified. There's a lot more research to be done, but I actually, I'm going to share it. I've started sharing it more, um, and I have checked my thinking with other people. But I believe this, it was this fellow named Lloyd T., who uh, is the author of a first edition big book story called The Rolling Stone. Because when I hear this story, what I think to myself after hearing the stories of other early gay and lesbian members is, why did he tell Dr. Bob? It's not something most early gay and lesbian members did, was admit, you know, at that first meeting that they were gay. Most of them just didn't talk about it. They wore their mask 
of heterosexuality that they normally wore, and they, if they had a sponsor they trusted, they would reveal it to their sponsor. Marty Mann was uh, sponsored by Bill W. Bill W. knew Marty was a gay woman. So I always had to ask myself, why would this guy have said, done this? You know, this was probably not even something that someone would think of. And so what I thought was, well, perhaps he had no choice. Perhaps it was either known, or perhaps he couldn't hide it. Perhaps he was gender nonconforming, you know, um, or perhaps there was some scandal. And so it made me think that, well, if that's a possibility, then he might be unmarried, probably, when he joined AA. And so we have this thing called the Amos list, the Amos roster, which is a list that Dr. Bob wrote with Bill W. in 1937 um, about, uh, which had a list of the the members and how long they've been sober when they came in and what city at the time of 1937. So we have a list of everyone who came in in year two in Akron. And there was one unmarried man named Lloyd T. And when you read his story, um, The Rolling Stone, he talks about how he traveled around the world as a merchant marine, as a sailor, getting into vices in different ports. And he ended up taking care of his mother, and being unmarried, um, which was often a role traditionally played by um, at least gender nonconforming um, gay men of this time period. And so I, I think it's a pretty compelling case, and it would be really awesome to go to Cleveland and get into some you know, records and do things like that so that it's a verified. So I want to make it clear that this is a theory and still has a lot to do, but it's a, it's a fascinating story. The other thing I love about Lloyd is that he sponsored Clarence S. So in the 12 and 12... He talks, Bill says this member ended up not causing any trouble at all and became a terrific 12-step bull and ended up helping thousands, which is true because he sponsored Clarence S., who next to Dr. Bob was the greatest 12-stepper of all time. And really, Cleveland and AA grew because of Clarence's efforts. Clarence is also associated with a more um, conservative side of Alcoholics Anonymous, so I enjoy the thought that this kind of more conservative conservative angle of AA, which some may call evangelical, right, is was actually founded by a gay man um, indirectly through Clarence. I get a kick out of that history, but, you know, that's just my opinion. <laughs> um, so let's move on. But, yeah, so if you share this, just, you know, again, unverified. Okay, so after 1937, the next verified um, that we know was a gay member uh, to join AA was Marty Mann, who is the author of the big book story, Women Suffer Too. A whole talk by Miley on Marty, not to be missed. I normally have like 10 slides right here, but we're not going to do it because Miley is going to give an awesome talk. Another notable early gay member was Barry. Um, L, like very few pictures of Barry. I would love to go to Stepping Stones because I know Lois has pictures of Barry and I'm, maybe I can beg the executive director there to let us have some. But this is kind of a picture. You can kind of see him a little bit right over there with Lois later in life. And he was the anonymous author of the book Living Sober. Came out in 1975. Gay man. Wrote a book called Living Sober. Then a conference called Living Sober was started in 1975. I don't know if that's on purpose or some weird, like, you know, HP synchronicity. So I know maybe Kim has a theory on that, but it seems pretty amazing to me either way, which either way comes out. Um, he also wrote this pamphlet called Do You Think You're Different, which is the first piece of AA literature to address remote communities, culturally remote communities, addressing al alcoholics who have barriers, different barriers that make them feel different and separate from perhaps the rest of the fellowship. Originally, the title was called So You Think You're Different. 
That, um, and luckily, I think it was Barry, perhaps, who suggested that wouldn't be the best title. So we're very lucky. That could have been our very first <laughs> special <laughs> composition. So you think you're different. And we still have, I believe that pamphlet is still in circulation today. And it, it, um, it has a story of a member named Patrick in it who um, refers to himself as a cross-dresser, but that at the time it was written may actually, in fact, been a transgender. So we also have an, some information about an early transgender member. Um, Barry was a regular contributor to the grapevine. He joined AA in New York City in 1945. Uh, by several personal accounts of other New York members, Barry was openly gay from the beginning of his recovery. Okay, so now let's talk about what does that mean? We got some more historical context because that's my favorite thing to do. Um, and so in Audrey's book talks about this really beautifully, um, that being open about one's homosexuality or out of the closet, as we call it nowadays, and I mean, being open about one's homosexuality meant something very different in the 1930s and 40s. Even the terms in the closet and coming out, they were not used by gay or straight people before the 1960s. They have done things where they have looked through journals and diaries and articles. People have searched for where this term, the closet, came from. It wasn't around before 1960s, just not how people thought of, right? Um, and it doesn't appear in any of these correspondences um, or any records of the gay movement prior to the 1960s. Instead, gay men and lesbians in the early part of the 20th century used the metaphor of living a double life or wearing a mask in mixed company and then taking it off in front of other homosexuals. Um, they talked about dropping clues or as one historian of gay culture in New York, George Chauncey, he described it as dropping hairpins. You know, walking around is like, oh... You know, and if you knew what that hairpin was, you know, um, uh, then you would know what it meant. I mean, you know, the classic example we know is the colored bandanas in the back of the jeans, etc. Um, some gay people would attempt to hide their sexuality more vigorously than others. Barry, who worked in theater and entertainment in New York, not as really not as concerned about it. I mean, even someone as public as Marty Mann, according to. Um, uh, interview with Leclerc, one of her sponsees in Audrey's book. Um, a lot of people knew she was gay. If you were gay, you knew she was gay because you went to meetings together and it was just, it was known. Bill W. knew Marty was gay, et cetera. Does that mean Marty was out of the closet? No, not in the sense that we think of it at all, right? Does it mean that she was in the closet? No, not in the sense that we think of it at all, in my opinion, you know, at least. Um, Almost all alcoholics can relate to living a double life, but imagine if you had to continue living one while in the rooms of AA. Barry was known to describe being gay and an alcoholic as having the double whammy. And according to Barry's talk um, that he gave uh, at the uh, International, one of his very last talks in Montreal, 1980, I believe, in those days we were not closeted. In 1945, we were sealed in vaults. But we had x-ray vision. We spotted each other. There he is again. Barry was good friends with Lois W. When Bill passed away in 1970, Barry became Lois's constant traveling companion. Barry's partner of 25 years and a longtime member of Al-Anon, Spencer B., died in 1982 of what would become known as AIDS. Spencer was one of the first men in New York to be diagnosed with the disease. Barry passed away three years later in 1985. It's one of the very few pictures we have, which I was able to find through Audrey's book and some eBaying. Um, the first great groups. Okay, now we finally get to the talk. <laughs> the part of the talk, almost an hour in. But you guys have the context now, right? So it's going to make all the difference. Okay. Uh, the first regular gathering of a group of gay AA members, as identified by Audrey Borden, took place in 1949 in Boston. 
There it is, in Beacon Hill. A handful of gay men secretly gathered in a rooming house on Beacon Hill. One of these group's members, Ed S., gave this account in a 1980 talk. I came back to AA in 1945. I could find sobriety, but I couldn't find serenity. I couldn't reach out to the people who could understand me as I wanted to be understood, who I could share my heartbreak with and my happiness more than just sobriety. Bill W. took a visit to Boston in 1949. At this point, he was traveling around the country trying to convince groups to uh, elect delegates to do this crazy idea for a trial conference for the General Service Conference because he was worried about what would happen when he died since um, Bob was sick too. Um, And I could get started on that talk, but I won't. Um, (laughs) But when Bill was visiting, um, Ed S., this is according to Ed, Ed approached him and he asked to speak privately with Bill. Um, He was very nervous, and he told Bill that there was an interest in starting a specialty group for homosexual alcoholics. And according to Ed, this is what Bill said when Ed told him this and kind of asked for his permission as the guru of AA or something like that. Now, Bill said, now, just a minute. Let's not go any farther. Are these people alcoholic? Well, yes, Ed replied. And then Bill said, whatever you do to discuss your problems and to stay sober... If that's the lengths you must go to, please do so. Bill was reported to say, one of of his sayings was, the best way to stay sober in AA is the way that works for you. I don't know if you could find many AA members who would say that out loud at a a meeting these days. (laughs) That would invite quite a conversation. So in 1949, with Bill's blessing, Queer AA came to Boston. I love this part of the story. Um, Hidden in plain sight, in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, gay groups and their members were subjected to surveillance. So now we are starting to have these groups that are starting to form, but they're not being called gay groups, except you just kind of, word of mouth, you hear about it. Or you get these clues that this group might be at least um, open and friendly to gay people. Um, And these groups and their members were subjected to surveillance, harassment, and other forms of intimidation by some of the more homophobic members of AA. Parking lots outside of gay meetings were monitored to see who was attending. In Australia, one group was told by other AA members that if they didn't disband, their full names and addresses would appear in the newspaper. Right? Anonymity breaking by blackmail by other AAs. One of the strategies that gay groups used to protect themselves was to place certain words, phrases, acronyms, and references. You know, and it's interesting. Here's this thing, right, about in the closet or et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, Black people couldn't hide the fact that a meeting was a black group. Women couldn't hide the fact that a meeting was a women's group. Young people, for the most part, you could tell if it was a young people's group. Um, But you could walk into a meeting that was a gay group and not know, right? until at least the conversation got started. So this thing is that gay people were afforded, in a way, they could pass for a straight meeting, right? So it comes to this, again, idea of these concepts of in the closet, out of the closet, not really starting to apply until 1970s become, and this is when it's going to become, at the same time, um, an interesting issue that comes up. But anyway, one of the strategies that gay groups used to protect themselves was to place certain words, phrases, acronyms, and references in their group names that gay alcoholics could recognize, but straight alcoholics would not. It's a kind of a hairpin that George Chauncey talked about. It was an effective way to get, and it was also a way that they could get their group listed in a directory, because if they said they were the gay group or something, they would not be allowed, right? And there were no designations allowed for them at this time. So they could get their group listed in a directory, they could 
in some ways at least make themselves known to other gay members, perhaps some gay newcomers who hear about it, and um, those people can, can attend. Now, Audrey collected a list of wonderful group name examples. So here are some of the, uh, maybe you can see a running theme uh, for these were the hidden clues, the hairpins that would let people know it was a, 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 a gay group. Live and Let Live, very popular, different strokes, oh, Stokes, strokes. Uh, there's a place for us that must have, I think that had to be in New York. But um, I Am What I Am, DT's group, hilarious. I love that one. My favorite of all time, oh, that meeting group in Flint, Michigan. I, I love that. Okay, I really want to start one in San Francisco. In 1969, an AA group for gay alcoholics in Los Angeles met for the first time. The six men gathered together that evening, chose the name Alcoholics Together, AT, for their group. And membership in the Alcoholics Together group grew rapidly, and soon there were AT meetings starting in other parts of Los Angeles, throughout Southern California in the 1970s and 80s, and then even in as far as cities, as far away as Boston, Toronto, the world's Alcoholic Together and its acronym became synonyms with Gay Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's even more fascinating history about Alcoholics Together, and you can read about that in Audrey's book. In 1974, the Lambda um, Greek symbol was officially declared the international symbol for gay and lesbian rights by the International Gay Rights Congress, and it was then adopted by LGBTQ meetings and clubhouses around the world. One of the very first Galano clubs, gay, Alano, Galano club, if you didn't, <laughs> it's like Sesame Street, right? You know that moment in Sesame Street where they push the words together? One of the first Galano clubs in the U.S. was founded in 1973 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay, interesting. That was the one I could find. Like, it's possible that another one was found and then disbanded, and then it's not, um, you know, so I have to do more. But it was an early one in the, the 1973. It was founded by members of the 94 groups, which was another series of groups, which was the code word for gay A meetings in Wisconsin, the 94 groups. I would love to know why. So if maybe Audrey knows, or maybe I could, we could do some fun research, but that was the code word for gay A meetings in Wisconsin. And the idea came to them because they, could, they had trouble finding and securing meeting spaces, because I think they lost a meeting space when it was found out that they were a group of homosexuals gathering together. Again, for a very long time, up through the 60s and 70s, it was illegal for gay people to visibly assemble together. So that was another issue with having gay groups that were, quote-unquote, you know, known as gay groups, is that it could actually be against the law. Let's talk about a gay group in San Francisco, the Fell Street Group. What about San Francisco? Gordon T. was one of the founders of the San Francisco's first gay group, the Friday Night Fell Street Group. Audrey interviewed the Fell Street Group founder in her book. Gordon describes the origin of the groups this way. I felt comfortable being a gay person in AA. So here's the founder saying, I felt comfortable personally. I didn't feel out of place, though a couple of people did. In 1967, I gave a little party, and I invited everyone I knew in AA that was gay. <laughs> well, that's kind of what we're doing today, right? We held a vote by secret ballot on whether to have a gay meeting. And the majority opinion was that we needed one anyway, and we decided that next week we would have one, right? So a lot of people, actually, the old-timer old gay members didn't actually feel it was necessary, but they were listening to the newcomers who were saying, we need this, right? Again, just because I was able to suck it up doesn't mean that maybe other people should have to following me. And culture and times change, and what one generation accepts as something they're willing to do is not necessarily what another generation is going to accept. I think that's what we're seeing today, perhaps, with the language of our main text and things 
things like that. There is a generation of people following us who maybe are a little bit more concerned about specific words and their meaning. And it doesn't mean they're wrong, and it doesn't mean they're not desperate enough. It just means that they're a different generation and times are changing. And it's something that these are the fun kinds of conversations we get to have in general service. For anyone who's ever wondered, why should I become a general service representative? We talk about this stuff all the time. Okay, so a friend of Gordon's was a pastor at the Church of the Advent, an Episcopal church in Hayes Valley that welcomed all people. The pastor gave permission in the following week in February 1968. They met at the church. The group was controversial, but not just among hetero mainstream AA members. It was also a divisive topic among gay AA members. George D., another early member of the group, described some of these reactions to Audrey. Friendships were strained. A lot of close friends wouldn't have anything to do with it. They thought it was terrible. They were concerned that there was no need, which was probably true in San Francisco because so many of the groups were heavily, if not predominantly, gay. They were concerned that it was divisive, right? It was a matter of disunity, traditions concerned. And there was a lot of fear. Anything new in AA, there's going to be fear, right? Square, accepting Venmo for seven tradition baskets. Tons of fear. You're going to be end of the world, anonymity breaks galore, big data coming into AA. I mean, anything new. There's going to be fear, and it's going to be fear for about 40 years of discussion over it as well, usually. The Fell Street group elected five secretaries so that, according to George, whatever wrath there was within the fellowship, it wouldn't come down all on one person. The San Francisco Central Office refused to list the group in the meeting directory or accept any of their Seventh Tradition donations. Unable to get the word out through the usual AA channels, the Fell Street group put a classified ad in an underground counterculture weekly paper, the Berkeley Barb, that say, Gay, Drinking Problem, Need Help Call. I tried to find that damn little ad. I looked through a lot of, like, little microfilm, and I couldn't find it. So if anyone wants to do some really nerdy archivist history and has good eyesight, come talk to me. Um, but this is an example of the Berkeley Barb, so you can kind of get a sense for the kind of newspaper. And actually, you know, AA also listed its number in the Berkeley Barb. And so that's how they got newcomers to come. There were between 10 and 20 people for the first year or two at the Fell Street Group. Some people who didn't want to be identified as being gay, so they didn't come in the beginning. Or if they came, they wouldn't participate much. But with time, people became more trusting. The Fell Street Group continued to meet at the Church of the Advent on Friday night for over four decades. It added a step study on Sunday nights. In the last 10 years, the Fell Street Group grew smaller and smaller. The step study disbanded in 2009, and the original Friday night meeting disbanded on July 16, 2018, a little over a year ago after 50 years. I will also say there was no mention in the point. It kind of disbanded without anyone knowing. It's very historically significant meeting. Um, so, you know, I think maybe... We, we, Kim and I have been putting our heads together about how to give due credit to this incredible meeting. But, and, you know, it happens in AA, but it was a really important group that lasted for over 50 years and one of the longest-running gay groups in the country. This is a really fun piece of history for me because, if you can't tell, I, I like general service. General service and special purpose groups, special composition groups. If the founding of the Fell Street group was controversial in San Francisco, imagine what the reactions were to the other gay groups forming around the country that wanted to be known as gay groups. Suddenly, it seemed like everyone in a big city was asking, what makes an AA group an AA group? And I think it's an important question for us to ask. And here's how I thought about it in the last couple of years. According to the long form of Tradition 3, 
Any two or three alcoholics gathered together for sobriety may call themselves an AA group, provided that as a group they have no other affiliation. Um, and that's the long form. And then the short form is the only thing required for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Uh, as we know that Bill described it in that 1968 General Service Conference is, you know, a member of AA is a member of he or she said so. Another way of thinking about... Um, an AA group in that sense is you could say an AA group is an AA group if they call themselves an AA group. Not also it's fairly controversial thing to say sometimes. One of my favorite quotes by Bill W. is from the very first appearance of the traditions at all in the July 1946 Grapevine article introducing them to the fellowship. And this is what he wrote about for the fourth tradition, each group is autonomous. Another way of saying that each group is autonomous is that each group has the right to be wrong. But this is what Bill wrote about Tradition 4. Anti-God, anti-medicine, anti-our recovery program. What is our recovery program? Anti the 12 steps. So he's saying this meeting could be anti-God, not use the 12 steps, not like the 12 steps, not like anti-medicine, even anti-each other. These rampant individuals are still an AA group if they think so. Very first appearance. Again, Bill's opinion. Not saying that Bill's opinion is, you know, um, biblical writing or anything like that. And, you know, Bill also said A would change as time went by. So I'm just, but I'm putting it out there. For me, I like that saying, personally. This tradition has very practical purposes. In the 1940s, the Tradition 4 we're talking about, very practical purposes. In the 1940s, the National Headquarters, which is actually, this is a video of the National Headquarters taken by um, March of Time. Uh, New York, we now call the National Headquarters General Service Office, or GSO, they had no way of vetting new groups. Groups were going so fast, and there wasn't a large staff. They made a decision, which was practical at first, and ended up having great spiritual implications, which was that in New York, the General Service Office headquarters would not say whether a group was an AA group. If you wrote to New York and you said you were an AA group, they listed you as an AA group, and they made you a point of contact. There was a meeting somewhere in the South that drank beer at their meetings. Now, I, I have not done the research to find out if they took them out of, you know, if they, if they stopped referring people to them or not. I don't know. But that is the classic example that is given, you know, um, that Bill gave in a talk about how, like, there was even a group that drank beer, you know, and they called themselves an AA group, and there was nothing that New York really could do about it. And thank God that New York is not in the business of suing groups over the name Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, that is really where the tradition that the only authority in AA and the only enforcer we need is John Barleycorn and God. A group that will, like the individual, if the group is spiritually fit and helps people stay sober, they will survive. The best way to stay sober is the way that works, according to Bill W. From the very beginning of GSO, the policy the headquarters was to add a group to the world directory. Um, if they wrote in and said they were a group. Sometimes they would get letters from angry secretaries reporting that a fake AA group had formed in what in the city and to remove them from the directory. Another reason why they just didn't want to get involved in these local disputes. Um, and for all practices of principles, and then they started to realize there was a real spiritual wisdom behind these policies. I've read these letters. They're, you know, don't, Charlie's group is a fake group. 
fake AA, don't give, you know, send them to me. I mean, he had a huge falling out with Clarence S. in Cleveland over this, over the fact that the group that Clarence had started, Clarence, you know, the people that Clarence had fought to bring in then wanted to, God forbid, elect a new secretary after however many years, and Clarence became furious and wrote to New York and said, you got, don't send anything to them, send it to me, and Bill said no, and then Clarence hated him for, like, the rest of his life. <laughs> and hated the traditions, hated everything. So um, all because of this kind of dispute. Um, many intergroups and central offices, on the other hand, have had not had the same policy as general service. Intergroups and central offices began to form in the 1940s in order to provide services that were beyond the scope and ability of a single group. The first central office was the Chicago Service Office, which opened in October 1941. The San Francisco Central Office, do I have a picture? Nope, I don't have a picture. Sorry, Kim. The San Francisco Central Office opened on January 27, 1946 at 693 Sutter Street. And so perhaps the most important service that a central office provides to its area is the printing and distribution of an AA meeting schedule. And over the last eight decades, the local meeting schedule and AA hotline are the primary way that an alcoholic can find a meeting. Today, the Internet has changed this dynamic uh, a little bit. But still today, intergroups wield a tremendous power and responsibility, the ability to list not list or delist a meeting from the local schedule. Many of us probably have direct experience of heard of such issues at our own intergroups. As queer people in the 1960s and 70s began to come out of the closet, finally now that term in the 1970s is being adopted because of the way society is changing and people are thinking of themselves differently, and gay uh, queer people in the LGBTQ are demanding visibility. Equal rights, equal recognition in society at large. And similarly, groups are asking to be listed visibly in their schedules as gay. And though these intergroups have been listing women's, young people's, Negro or interracial groups in their directories for decades, most intergroups refuse the request from gay groups. Some went a step further. They sent undercover members to infiltrate and spy on reportedly gay me meetings using a coded name. Not only were visible gay groups not being listed, but the closeted groups the hidden groups were being delisted during this time as a result of this, um, the, these requests coming out. As I mentioned in the history of the Fell Street group, this was happening in San Francisco too. So what did a gay group do when they were refused inclusion in a local directory? They wrote to New York and they asked to be listed in the world directory. And so in 1973, at the 23rd annual meeting of the General Service Conference, the topic of listing gay groups and then subsequently all special purpose groups was addressed at this General Service Conference during a sharing session, which is different from a discussion for agenda topic. This was just a sharing session to kind of talk about what was happening in the fellowship. And it was decided that the question of homosexual and special purpose groups listings would be discussed and voted on the following year one of my favorite pieces of AA history and one of my favorite parts of Audrey's book. The General Service Conference is the voice of the collective conscience of our fellowship and the only entity that can give clear directives to our board of trustees uh, who own and supervise and run our general service office, our publishing arm. They're the legal, um, they're legally responsible for those things. And so the General Service Conference did get adopted as the sole successors to Bill and Bob in 1955 in St. Louis. And so the General Service Conference, as a collective conscience of our fellowship, makes decisions about our literature and our world service, including decisions about the directory, the world directory. 
1974, so again, they're not making decisions about what a local directory will do. They're only making decisions about what they'll do with the world directory produced by the General Service Office, but that sets a precedence, and people often take what happens at the New York level, the net, you know, the general service level, as kind of an, a precedent, an indication of what might be healthy for local groups to do. But not always. I mean, each group and each intergroup is an autonomous entity. In April 1974, 93 elected delegates from general service areas around the United States and Canada gathered for AA's 14th annual general service conference. They met with the 21 trustees of the general service board and members of the GSO and AA grapevine staff to discuss and vote on issues facing AA as a whole in the U.S. and Canada. They do this every year. They just did this, including the following agenda topic was discussed in 1974. Should groups or homosexual alcoholics be included in AA's world directory? Almost a day and a half were devoted to the discussing this question. Um, it was extended late into the evening. It was some, things were taken off the day the next day and started. I mean, it was supposedly an extremely marathon sessions of discussion. Almost, um, and a floor motion was added also about whether any special groups should be included in the directory. So this is also really important. So now because of this, this whole issue of like, should we even be including women's meetings, you know, people of color meetings, you know, young people's meetings. So now it becomes just a blanket and, you know, fairly so, because why was this one group being excluded when there was no problem with these other groups? Um, Arguments against listing gay groups centered on the belief that they were tradition violations, which I had just, I have a service sponsor, because I'm in general service, a spur and sponsor, someone who's kind of done the service positions before you and can kind of help guide you through the set of principles and the structures that relate to general service specifically. You get to learn a whole new set of spiritual tools. It's really cool. And one of the things we were talking about is um, how much my service sponsor and me too, I completely agree, don't like the word violation when applied to the traditions. Because the traditions aren't rules, they're principles. And violation just sounds, I mean, and believe me, people get very heated, like you are violating AA, right? It's just not a great way, I think, to think about spiritual principles. And it just it's a way to just immediately start off a discussion, I think, with a bad taste in your mouth. And so he brought up the word uh, misalignment, that perhaps what's happening when we have these discussions is that someone's actions are not aligned with the, tr the tr traditions. And often, really, what we're talking about, not aligned with my tradition, my interpretation of the traditions. Because to me, they're not black and white rules. They require interpretation. And as you'll see in this discussion, um, usually most issues, such as should homosexual alcoholics be included in a groups, be included in AA's world directory, involves several traditions at play in complex ways where really you have to make kind of a call about which tradition do you think um, perhaps should have more weight in this kind of setting. It's, again, you know, people think general service is, you know, dull. And, yeah, I mean, compared to, like, uh, you know, Rule 62 meeting, it's, you know, a little bit um, not as exciting as a 10 p.m. meeting at, you know, an Alano club or something. But um, for me, there, I like having these kind of discussions with other people who care about the traditions and the future AA and et cetera. So these are the kind of stuff that we, we do talk about still to this day in general service. So here's the first tradition that came up a lot. And I got in the, the conference report this stuff came up. So we know that they talked about Tradition 1, and they felt like uh, this issue of uh, gay groups was so controversial within the fellowship. This happened to the Fell Street group, right? It was divisive. That including gay groups would disrupt and divide AA. Our common unity comes, uh, welfare should come first. 
Tradition three, they felt it was a tradition three recurring gay groups, and by extension, any special purpose groups appear to exclude some alcoholics. Tradition five. Um, there should be no special purpose AA groups because each group only has one primary purpose. Tradition 10, the gay rights and the civil rights movements were considered, considered huge public controversies at this time. And Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, right? So even having this meant when we were getting involved in um, controversial issues. So these were a lot of the arguments against. Um, and the arguments in favored, um, I think, are best kind of summarized by this one presentation given by this delegate from Washington, D.C., John W., who he's come up in other things I've studied, and he's a really cool guy. But here's John W. So that's what you know, often happens is when the, uh, you know, the committees are formed. They, they, so it's basically two different people got sent out to do research in their area and kind of present a pro and a con to the General Service Conference so that there could be an informed uh, group conscience. And so here was um, some of the uh, uh, arguments in favor. Um, new people who are gay are much more comfortable at a gay group and anticipate misunderstanding in regular groups. Whether this feeling is real or imaginary, the group recommends that these newcomers start at a gay meeting and eventually become active in other groups. They claim they are no more special or exclusive than other groups whose names indicate particular professions or sex. But the question remains, are special purpose groups in line with the third tradition? A majority of AAs in our area feel they are if, as they say, every alcoholic is welcome no matter what the composition of the group may be. We are responsible for seeing that the hand of AA is there for those who reach out for it. Only very important matters threatening the existence of AA should be allowed to shorten that outstretched arm. Barry was in attendance at this conference, and he, uh, he gave us some really specific um, things that happened um, in Audrey's talk. Um, she recounts part of a, a talk he gave, and he's describing what happened in this moment. And Barry said he's sitting there taking notes, listening to the debate. This is the 1974 debate over special purpose groups in the World Directory. I'm hearing people say, if we list queers, what are you going to do next year? List rapists? Child molesters? One man gave a speech about these deviates, as he called them. The delegate from one northeastern states or Canada provinces that year was a tiny woman, and she ran to the microphone, and in a high, squeaky little voice, she said, where I come from, alcoholics are considered deviates. And apparently, that's the thing that can happen at the conference and in general services. Sometimes one person will say something that can change the whole sense of the meeting and the room, which is why, in general service, we value participation in the minority opinion so much. The members of the 1974 General Service Conference eventually did vote almost unanimously, 128 in favor, two and opposed to list gay groups. That's really exceptional. Yay. It was a moment in which AA symbolically recognized gay people's presence and full membership in AA. San Francisco's Friday Night's Fell Street Group was one of the first gay groups to be listed in the World Directory. And by 1976, it was listed in the San Francisco Intergroup Meeting Schedule. Gay! And then, just as a fun fact, Castro Country Club was founded in 1983. That's a picture from the 90s, so that was the oldest picture I could find online. Um, but so, and then we had our clubhouse. Um, did that stop people from talking about this issue? No. <laughs> 1977, three years later, 12 pages of the grapevine are devoted to the question of special purpose groups. 
To this day, similar debates are being held in coffee shops, at kitchen tables, during group business meetings, and yes, in Facebook closed groups too. In fact, I... Exactly the same. And that's AA for you. We spend decades having the same arguments over and over again about what is a meeting and what is not, who is an alcoholic and who is not, and what is a violation of a tradition and what is not. And it's important that we keep having these conversations, but with love and tolerance. There is so much more fascinating history regarding LGBTQ groups and other special composition groups in AA. There was quite a fight at the general service level over the first pamphlet for the homosexual alcoholic and, of course, the first international and gay lesbian roundup for AA members living sober was founded here in 1975. All these topics are deserving of more study and time, and if you hunger for more, I urge you to read Audrey's book and visit the Living Sober Archives. Where are those archives? I have no idea. I'm so glad I put a picture from the archives. Otherwise, you're in the archives room right now. Um, so while you're here, you take a look around. Um, um, I have just, I've spoken for a really long time. I'm going to talk about something because I feel like a really important part about studying this history, particularly of underserved populations, remote communities, is not just to wring our hand at like our failings in the past, but really like any good AA, take an inventory of what we've done that worked and didn't work, and try to do things differently. And so whenever I when I started studying this stuff, it was the same time that I met this man named Joe from Toronto who's been sober for 30 years and founded a, a couple of groups called the Beyond Belief Group. And Joe is an atheist, and he's been an atheist for the whole time he's been sober, over 30 years, I think close to 40 years. And so the same time I gave my very first history talk about the history of um, LGBTQ members, he gave a talk about the history of atheists and agnostics. And it... I mean, it still has shaken me to this core, I would say, about six years later, because what kept coming up was how many similarities there were between the two histories, except what was happening to the atheists and agnostics were happening to them right now. So this is the point in which I don't want to say it's controversial, but um, I'm going to make some modern parallels between the experience of uh, gays and lesbians groups NAA and atheists and agnostics. So I'm just going to bring up some of the stuff that happened before that we talked about and just talk about some of the things that have happened recently. And again, um, this is just for you to take what you will. But it was a profound moment for me, and I can't really, I have a hard time giving this share without mentioning it and getting emotional. Um, even though myself, I am not an atheist and agnostic, nor am I a, a lesbian or gay person or a queer identified person. I'm an ally. Uh, despite playing a vital historical role in the writing of our big book and the early spread of AA, atheist and agnostic members have operated for decades and decades under a don't-tell attitude at the group level. Both newcomers and longtime members have reported experiencing condescension, peer pressure, verbal and physical bullying, ostracization, excommunication at meetings when speaking about their non-belief. In the 12 and 12, Bill tells the story of a pioneering member, Jimmy B., who he calls Ed, a traveling salesman and atheist who used the group as his higher power, and he stayed sober for over 30 years with the group as his higher power until his death. And the New York group and Bill, they considered kicking him out because he was a disturbing factor in the group. But Jimmy is the reason why God is you understand, why God, um, as you understand him, God as you understand him was added to our third step. That simple phrase, Bill W. later wrote, widened the gateway for millions to make their way into AA and stay, and without Jimmy's contribution, would we even still be here today? 
And this kind of intolerance doesn't just take place in suburban and rural area communities, in metropolitan areas, in San Francisco. Um, the clubhouse is my home group that I serve as a DCM for. Um, flyers for an atheist agnostic groups and for the International Secular Conference have been vandalized and repeatedly torn down at an AA clubhouse. So every week we would have to put up the same conference flyer because it would get torn down because it was an atheist agnostic flyer for a conference. Acidic agnostic meetings have been targeted of sting operations, similar to the sting operations that uh, gay members endured at their meetings, um, often with the purpose of finding reasons to delist the group. Um, most common reason being, are they using any non-conference approved literature? Now, one thing to take in consideration is that for... Um, until last year, so we're talking about 75 years of AA history um, or 80 years of AA history, there was no conference-approved literature for uh, atheists and agnostics, so it's not really like they had much of a choice if they wanted to use any literature at all. But the most telling example of the consequences of delisting an AA group took place recently in Canada. In 2014, the Toronto Intergroup and AA World Service was sued by the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario on behalf of an atheist AA member, Larry Kay, because they delisted his home group and two other agnostic groups from the meeting schedule. They were using an alternative form of the 12 steps that their group had adapted and called an adaption. They never said it was the 12 steps. During the trial, the Toronto Intergroup's lawyers submitted a public defense. This is by the Toronto Intergroup decided they were going to continue with the lawsuit. And they put in a public defense that you can find online that said AA can discriminate against these atheist agnostic members because AA is a religious organization. And under Canadian law, religious organizations are allowed to discriminate in membership on the basis of religious belief and non-belief. What's more dangerous to the future and, and AA as a whole? One group, two groups using an alternative version of the 12 steps or having a whole country recognize AA as a religious organization. Fortunately, in response, AAWS told Toronto that they would have to no longer recognize the Toronto intergroup as the intergroup <laughs> if they continued with that defense. This is all available online and verifiable. Toronto intergroup, and again, most of, I will say this on behalf of the Toronto intergroup and the AAWS, a lot of what we know about what took place took place from the side of both the civil rights, uh, the human rights tribunal and the, um, and the member who, you know, the members, uh, the atheist agnostic members, because it's not the policy of AAWS or most um, businesses to speak about litigation, even past litigation. So there's a whole other side that I may not be representing, but the parts that I'm representing are historic, you know, are accurate according to the public record. But they did relent based on that, and they began to mediate. Now, here's the other fascinating thing. In 2000, you know, when they first delisted the groups, there were only three atheist agnostic groups. By 2017, when they were relisted, there were 12. So again, just let, let God sort it out <laughs> is the irony for the, for the, you know, I mean, that's what our thing says, right? Let a higher power, let, let if you can stay sober. I mean, it's, it's just fascinating. So, um, and then finally, regarding our conference-approved literature, um, there have been requests by AA members for over four decades for a pamphlet sharing the experience of atheist agnostics. The first request that came into the General Service Office for a pamphlet for the atheist agnostic experience was in the 1970s. Um, and uh, it came around the same time that a uh, gay and lesbian pamphlet was requested with about the same level of controversy, except in 1989, the gay and lesbian pamphlet got 
approved. We finally got a pamphlet called The God Word um, because of the General Service Conference voting last year. If your group discussed this agenda topic, thank you for participating in that part of the conversation. Again, really important why to have a general service representative because these are the things we talk about. And the other fascinating thing is this God Word pamphlet didn't originate here. It actually uh, was around in the UK for several years. It didn't destroy AA in the UK. So then um, they decided it was probably going to be okay here. And plus, uh, the UK was overwhelmed by requests for the pamphlet. I mean, they, people in the United States were hungering for it. Um, also, the, we finally have this book called A Big Tent, which is not conference approved, but it's, it's by the grapevine. They put it out, and this we got last year, um, I believe, and it's Atheist Agnostic Stories, a whole book of stories of atheist agnostics who stay atheist and agnostic. That's also an important thing, because there are a lot of stories we've had about people who've changed. We have a whole chapter called We Agnostics in the Big Book devoted to that. But this was the stuff that was being called out, people were crying out for. So again, those are just some of the, you know, everything from surveillance to having to use coded names to represent meetings. Some, some intergroups have designations now, and some don't. You know, one of my favorite coded names for an atheist agnostic group is Without a Prayer. That's up in a I think Sonoma County. Um, but I think what it all comes down to when looking at these remote communities, historically remote communities, culturally remote communities, is remembering um, that when we talk about these things, and, um, and I think we should talk about these things and pray about things, that love and tolerance is our code, and live and let live. Thank you so much.